Welcome to Real Paranormal Activity, the network. Entertainment you'll enjoy. You are listening to an RPA production where people gather. Ladies and gentlemen, Real Paranormal Activity is proud to present Terry's Mysterious Moments. Welcome to Terry's Mysterious Moments, Season 3. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the odd, the weird, the strange, Hope you'll enjoy it. Now, on with the show. Good evening, my fellow Mysterians. Let's jump right into the stories. I want to talk about some mysterious things. They're not particularly spooky, but they are odd. And I'm all about odd. So let's move into the first story. I would like to talk to you about the Mapimi Silent Zone, or in Spanish, La Zona del Silencio. And it's the popular name for a desert patch near the Bolson de Mapimi in Durango, Mexico, overlapping the Mapimi Biosphere Reserve. It is the subject of what some consider an urban myth that claims it is an area where radio signals and any type of communication cannot be received. In July of 1970, an Athena test rocket launched from the Green River Launch Complex in Utah towards the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, made a whoopsie and lost control, went off course and fell in the Mapimi Desert region. When the rocket went off course, it was carrying two small containers of Cobalt-57 a radioactive element. After several weeks of searching, local farmers found and reported the crash in the northeast corner of the state of Durango. Once the rocket was found, a road was built and the missile wreckage and a small amount of contaminated topsoil was transported away. As a result of the U.S. Air Force recovery operation there, a number of myths and legends relating to the area arose. Reportedly, a local resident hired to guard the crash debris during recovery operations helped spread these rumors. Legends include strange magnetic anomalies that prevent radio transmission, mutations of flora and fauna, extraterrestrial visitations, and a Mexican pilot who supposedly first reported that his radio experienced unexplained malfunctions while flying over the area in the 1930s. The area is sometimes compared to the Bermuda Triangle, as both are located between parallels 26 and 28. When compasses and communications equipment are shown to work properly in the zone, local New Age and paranormal enthusiasts claim that the zone moves around. It turns out there may be some natural anomaly associated with the region, though. High levels of magnetite have been discovered there and scientists have also found that the area is a hotbed for meteorite activity. 
raising speculation that there may be some unusual magnetic properties associated with the minerals in the chalky soil. Researchers have been trying to determine whether magnetic ore is naturally occurring or is the product of contamination from thousands or millions of years of meteorite bombardment. And if the high magnetic properties are a result of natural causes, could this be the reason that so many iron-rich objects from space find their way to this remote spot on Earth? With an electromagnetic field measuring as strong as that of the North Pole, researchers suggest that it is no surprise that the zone draws high amounts of metallic compounds from meteors to space debris. This also accounts for spinning compass needles in poor radio and cell performance. Unusual plant and animal mutations remain unexplained though, but the larger question remains, why is the zone an anomalous center of almost off-the-charge electromagnetism? In his out-of-print 1986 book, The Zone of Silence, author Gary Hunt theorized that at some point in the Earth's history, a massive meteor slammed into what is now the zone, likely hundreds of times the size of the Allende meteor. The Allende meteor, or meteorite, is the largest carbonaceous chondrite ever found on Earth. The fireball was witnessed at 105 on February 8, 1969, falling over the Mexican state of Chihuahua. After breaking up in the atmosphere, an extensive search for pieces was conducted and over two tons of meteorite were recovered. The availability of large quantities of samples of the scientifically important chondrite class has enabled numerous investigations by a large number of scientists. It is often described as the best studied meteorite in history. The Allende meteorite has abundant, large, calcium-aluminum-rich inclusions, which are among the oldest objects formed in the solar system. Likely hundreds of times the size of the Allende, an impact of this scale should have left a massive crater zone miles across. Yet the zone surface is as flat as a Kansas cornfield. But a giant meteor with an exceptionally high iron content could account for the magnetic properties in the zone if it acquired magnetism in deep space. Hunt explained that the fossil record reveals that the zone was once under the ancient Cretaceous Sea of Thetis. An impact could have driven the object deep into the seabed. Over time, the sea bottom would have settled over the object or its exploded fragments, flattening to the zone's current topography. A deeply buried, highly magnetic iron-bearing object or objects would exert powerful force above, below, and throughout the area. Hunt also cites theories which state that the meteor was actually placed at the location by off-world visitors with the purpose of facilitating space travel. Even more way out is the theory that suggests a meteor might have been purposely directed toward Earth by some intelligence within the universe, he wrote. In defense of the theorists, there have been a number of unusual tales that have come out of the zone. Strange lights, floating orbs, burning bushes, flying saucers, and alien encounters have all been reported with a degree of abundance considering the sparse population of the region. Ranchers of the area report the night sky is often filled with mysterious lights, and they have reported floating aircraft. 
that allegedly landed vertically in the desert, often causing brush to ignite and catch fire. Nopal cactus grow in abundance. On the zone outskirts, they have the typical green coloring, but change to pink and into purple as one travels deeper into the region. What's even weirder is that the purple and pink specimens are interspersed with green cactus plants. Another rare species, the tailless Mapimi tortoise, is native to the area. Foot-long centipedes with purple heads and tails hunt anything they can catch, including mice and birds. Insects grow two to three times normal size, and albino reptiles and snakes are frequently sighted. Today, much of the zone is within the boundaries of the Mapimi Biosphere Reserve. The inexplicable flora and fauna are subject to ongoing research. There have been testimonies about strange beings in the zone, specifically the same three people on a regular basis. This trio consists of one woman accompanied by two men. They are all blonde. One ranch in particular claims more than its fair share of encounters with this trio. According to the staff there, all three members of the group dressed in clothing that was, quote, not at all suitable for a desert environment, unquote. Purportedly, they all spoke fluent Spanish like natives and were not only extremely attractive, but also polite to an extreme. Every visit had the same motive. The three would request to fill their canteens with water from the well on the property. They never once asked for food or anything else. According to ranch staff, when one ranch hand dared to ask where they originated, the only reply they gave was, from above. Then there's the story of the visiting researcher at the biosphere who became lost in the desert. He reports that he was directed back to the research center by a similar trio of blonde, quote, strange-looking people, end quote. Another story has it that a TV news investigation crew was aided by strange beings in the desert after being stuck in the road during an unusual cloudburst. These beings reportedly wore long raincoats and ball caps. That's something you don't often see in the desert wilderness. Mexican engineer and chemist Harry de la Pena had blonde hair and blue eyes. And since high school, he had been called El Luminario, the luminous one. After a European education, de la Pena returned to Mexico to teach chemistry at the Instituto Tecnológico de Laguna in Torreon, Mexico. On a blistering day in 1966, he departed Torreon for a photo expedition with a group of friends. On that day, El Luminario would stumble into a zone of anomalous paradox. While native mestizos, the ethnically mixed descendants of Anglo and indigenous peoples, had long known the area had strange and special qualities, it was now on the radar of a European trained scientist. The locals believed that couples having trouble conceiving children could visit the zone with the baby coming nine months later. Notably, Zone locals also had superior dental health with straight white teeth and random blood samples from zone residents show far greater health than those from outside the area. Within the zone, 
there are plenty more unexplainable findings, such as six-mile-long rectangular earthen platforms, a hill formation discovered by botanist and zoologist Luis Meda, Ph.D., appears to have been human-made and is covered with non-local stone specimens. Ancient relics, including a human head carved from stone, have been found nearby. For now, biological and environmental research continues, but the mysteries of the zone of silence remain unsolved. Residents who do not accept the zone's existence call such enthusiasts zoneros or silenciosos and say their activities have an adverse effect on the region, but the legend is now being used to help promote tourism in the area. That's a weird one. What do you think about the the trio and the, the two guys that helped unstick the truck? Do you think they're aliens? Do you think they're maybe angels? I don't know. Next story is about the Sandringhams. A story out of the First World War, originating from the battlefields of the area around Gallipoli, concerns a mystery of a lost battalion. War brings with it many things. Death, destruction, chaos, loss. These are all innate features of battle. War also has a tendency to draw around itself rich folklore, mysteries, and amazing stories from the battlefield. One of the most well-known and certainly more bizarre tales of wartime mystery comes from the bloody battlefields of World War I when an entire battalion of men is said to have marched bravely into battle to fight their enemy only to inexplicably disappear without a trace off the face of the earth. The setting for the incident was the Gallipoli campaign which took place on the Gallipoli Peninsula of the Ottoman Empire from 25 April 1915 until January 9, 1916. The objective of the campaign was for Allied powers of Britain and France to launch an ultimately unsuccessful naval and amphibious assault against the Turks to secure the Dardanelles, which is a strait that connects the Mediterranean with the Black Sea and served as an essential sea route for their ally, Russia. At the time, the strait was controlled by Turkey, an ally of Germany. The eventual plan was to push through and forcefully claim the city of Constantinople, which is present-day Istanbul, which was the Ottoman Empire's capital, and thus that would expel the Turks from the war. In the midst of the bloody campaign, there came the Sandringhams, a military unit that had been created in 1908 by King Edward VII, consisting of men that had been recruited from the staff of the Royal Sandringham Estate. Among these coalition forces there were 250 men and 16 officers from the Royal Norfolk Regiment. There were grooms, servants, and gardeners of the British Royal Family Estate of Sandringham in Norfolk included in the regiment. They would later be included with the 5th Territorial Battalion, the Royal Norfolk Regiment, or the Norfolks. The regiment 
was rather unique in that it was one of the first examples in the British forces of what came to be referred to as PALS battalions, which were military units made up of men who had all been recruited from the same civilian group, for instance, the same town, or the same company, or in this case, the royal estate. They were close-knit groups, comprised of men who knew each other well, and in many cases, had even grown up together. In the case of the Sandringhams, they were about to go to war together. The Norfolk Regiment, made up of 250 men, 16 officers, led by Sir Horace Proctor Beecham, set out for the Gallipoli Peninsula from Liverpool on July 30, 1915, aboard the SS Aquitania and arrived at Suvla Bay in Gallipoli on 10 August 1915 among heavy fighting. They did not have to wait long to see battle themselves. On August 12th, just two days after their arrival, the 5th Norfolks, part of the 163rd Brigade, were ordered to launch an offensive against Turkish positions holding the Anafarda Plain in order to clear them out ahead of a planned Allied advance. From the beginning, the mission was faced with setbacks. The men were in poor physical condition due to the rigors of their journey, the side effects of inoculations, the lack of sleep, and the harsh, brutally hot and arid climate of the area. Many of them were sick with dysentery, and general morale was low. In addition, the advance was to be carried out in broad daylight with poor supplies, inadequate water, and totally inaccurate maps against seasoned Turkish fighters who knew the land well and were deeply dug in along ridges. Additionally, the objective of the mission was not made particularly clear, with some of the men thinking that they were going to attack the village of Anafarda Saga rather than clear the way for the British assault. It's perhaps no surprise that the attack turned into a massacre. The exhausted, thirsty, sick men first made an error and turned the wrong way, separating them from the larger 163rd Brigade. Realizing their mistake, they prepared to advance against Kavik Tepe Ridge without support or reinforcements. When they did, they were immediately met with a rain of machine gun fire and picked off by numerous snipers entrenched in the ridge and sitting in trees. The Norfolk Regiment bravely pressed on in this maelstrom of blood and bullets, actually managing to push the enemy back towards a forest that was ablaze from artillery fire. Beecham and his men continued the charge into the burning forest, and that was the last anyone would ever see of them. The battalion would never emerge from the forest, none would come back to tell the tale, and by most accounts, they had simply vanished from the face of the earth. It is from this charge into the smoke and trees that the mystique and mystery of the vanished Royal Norfolk Regiment really takes off. It was assumed at the time that the men had been captured by Turkish forces and held as prisoners of war. The British made inquiries to the Turkish government as to whether they had been taken as prisoners, but the Turks denied any knowledge of the Norfolks. When the war was over, the British demanded the return of the soldiers, but again, the Turks adamantly denied having them.
and indeed declared that they had never heard of them. The War Graves Commission carried out searches for war dead on the battlefields of Gallipoli in 1918, which would meet with mixed success as 14,000 of the 36,000 Commonwealth soldiers who had died in the bloody campaign were never found, and another 13,000 were uncovered in unidentified graves. During one of these searches, a Reverend Charles Pierpoint Edwards found a Norfolk's regimental cap badge along with 180 bodies scattered around a farmhouse surrounded by the wooded area in which the men had last been seen. 122 of the bodies were found to have shoulder badges that identified them as members of the Norfolks and one was even identified by his shoulder flashes as Lieutenant Colonel Beecham himself. At the time, this was seen as definitive proof as to the fate of the regiment, and it was a pretty closed case. Yet the case of the vanished battalion would only get weirder in the ensuing years. The case of the vanished battalion remained pretty much closed until the 50th anniversary of the Gallipoli landings in April of 1965 when a New Zealand World War I veteran by the name of Frederick Reichert, along with two of his compatriots, came forward with their own alleged first-hand accounts of what he saw on that fateful day. The story was recounted by Reichert during a reunion of veterans and offered a bizarre twist on the tale of the missing battalion. Reichert went on record saying that they had been sappers with New Zealand Expeditionary Force and that they had been operating in an area near a Turkish position known as Hill 60, which was not far from where the lost Norfolk Regiment had been waging war. The sapper claimed they noticed between six and eight odd grayish-brown loaf-shaped clouds hovering over the battlefield. The weird clouds were described as being completely still, even in the face of high winds at the time. Beneath these clouds was reportedly another, even larger and denser looking cloud that was estimated as being around 800 feet in length and around 200 feet high. This massive cloud was allegedly hugging the ground over a dry creek bed when the Norfolk Regiment approached and without hesitation proceeded to march directly into it. When the regiment had disappeared into the cloud, Reichert claimed that it had then slowly risen upwards to join the other strange clouds, apparently taking the soldiers with it, after which they all moved off to the north in unison before disappearing from view. The story was first published in the September-October edition of the New Zealand UFO magazine, Space View, in 1965. The story would be somewhat corroborated when, in 1966, another New Zealand veteran of the campaign, Gerald Wilde, told Spaceview magazine that although he had not seen the disappearance directly, he had heard many rumors among soldiers that the entire Norfolk Regiment had disappeared into a cloud that had been straddling the ground. There are some witnesses and stories that have it as a golden mist. It was a rather bizarre story that flew in the face of the official conclusion of what had happened to the vanished battalion, but it was immediately jumped upon by UFO enthusiasts and became an almost legendary tale among missing persons cases, particularly those suggesting alien abduction. 
The story took a life of its own, especially among alien abduction enthusiasts, and would be told again and again in various publications, each time gaining further details or having the details change somehow. People just couldn't seem to get enough of this sinister tale of cloud-shaped UFOs whisking away a whole regiment of men in the middle of a battlefield. The story gained such a following amongst the public that the British Ministry of Defense and the Imperial War Museum were constantly deluged with letters demanding the release of top-secret files that had outlined the mass alien abduction and saying that it had been covered up. So what really happened to the Norfolks and the Sandringham Company, which had been a part of them? Did they die on that battlefield like so many others that day? Or were they abducted by forces beyond our understanding? Although the cloud story is intriguing and holds so many elements of mystery and suspense, unfortunately, it has lent itself to a large amount of criticism for its veracity. The main problem is that it is littered with inconsistencies and inaccuracies, such as giving the wrong dates and even the wrong battalion number. Reichert claimed that he had seen the weird incident on August 28, 1915, when in fact the attack had been carried out on August 12th. He also said it was the 1-4 battalion that had disappeared, when actually the 1-4 had been a sister battalion held in reserve, while it had been the 1-5 battalion that had actually charged into battle and vanished. These errors could perhaps be chalked up to so much time having passed from the alleged incident to when Reichert first reported it, as well as the fact that he admitted he hadn't kept any sort of written diary at the time. But things got weirder when a secretive group of U.S. scientists and officials referred to as MJ-12 released a report on the same incident in a paper titled First Annual Report in 1998. The document is apparently an annex to another paper that describes the incident dating to 1952. The first annual report describes the incident this way. On August 21, 1915, members of the New Zealand Army Corps First Field Company signed sworn statements that they saw the 1-4 Norfolk Regiment disappear in an unusually thick brown cloud which seemed to move and rose upward and vanished. There were no traces of the regiment nor their equipment. No explanation can be found in the historical records of the Imperial War Museum archives. Interestingly, the report contains some of the same mistakes as the original testimony, as well as all new ones. Again, the battalion is erroneously referred to as the 1-4 Norfolk Regiment, and furthermore, it states that the story was relayed in 1915, when in fact, Reichert hadn't come forward with this tale until 1965. This glaring oversight by a panel of what are supposedly top scientists and officials, as well as the fact that the original document is said to have been written in 1952, long before Reichert ever came forward, has caused some to declare the MJ-12 report a hoax that was probably cobbled together from the same misinformation perpetuated through books on UFOs without any effort to check facts. Thus, in my opinion, MJ-12 is at best a questionable group, at worst simply parrots of any wild theories they happen to pick up from other sources. 
certainly one of the most meticulous and in-depth investigations into the legend of the Vanished Battalion was a book called The Vanished Battalion by historian Nigel McCrary, who managed to uncover some intriguing details of the case. One important fact that was mentioned was that the clergyman who had discovered the field of bodies in 1918 had at the time of his report to the war office failed to mention that the corpses had all been shot in the head, execution style. This put a sinister spin on things since it suggested a war crime rather than a field of men who had died valiantly in battle. It was not wholly implausible as at the time the Turks were infamous for an aversion to taking prisoners of war, a fact that was further corroborated by survivors of other such massacres who described horrific scenes of brutality committed by the Turkish soldiers. One man who had survived such an incident told of seeing Turkish soldiers ruthlessly gunning down and bayoneting helpless or wounded enemy soldiers not far from where the Norfolks had disappeared. McCrary surmised that withholding the information concerning the bullet wounds had been part of a cover-up designed to hide the fact that these soldiers, many of them from the King's own proud Sandringham's unit, had not died with valor, but rather cowering at the mercy of a sadistic enemy. McCrary also came to the conclusion that the Allied commander in charge of the Gallipoli campaign, Sir Ian Hamilton, had also made efforts to dress up the massacre as something more mysterious and unexplained than it truly was. The Gallipoli campaign had turned out to be one of the Allied forces' most humiliating defeats and was marked by a series of botched missions, mishaps, and poor planning. McCrary speculated that rather than risk his reputation by admitting that his poor leadership and foresight had led to the pointless slaughter of so many men, Hamilton opted to make it seem like the battalion had disappeared under mysterious circumstances that were beyond his control. In his final dispatch to the Secretary of State for War, Hamilton said, in the course of the fight, there happened a very mysterious thing. Against the yielding forces of the enemy, Colonel Sir H. Beecham, a bold, self-confident officer, eagerly pressed forward, followed by the best part of the battalion. The fighting grew hotter, and at this stage many men were wounded or grew exhausted, but the Colonel, with 16 officers and 250 men, kept pushing forward driving the enemy before him. Nothing more was seen or heard of any of them. They charged into the forest and were lost to sight or sound. Not one of them ever came back. Essentially, Hamilton could have been trying to wash his hands of yet another botched operation under his command by spinning it into a freak occurrence. Intriguingly, there is a report by the Royal Commission on Gallipoli which was compiled in 1916 but not released to the public until 1965. Within the report was an excerpt on a page facing Hamilton's final dispatch which reads, By some freak of nature, Suvla Bay and Plain were wrapped in a strange mist on the afternoon of 21 August. This was sheer bad luck as we had reckoned on the enemy's gunners being blinded by the declining sun and upon the Turks' trenches being shown up by the evening sun with singular clearness. Actually, we could hardly see the enemy lines this afternoon. 
whereas to the west targets stood out in strong relief against the luminous light. This report eerily lines up with a claim made in a 1967 book titled Flying Saucers Are Hostile, in which authors Brad Steiger, that's a name you should know, Brad Steiger and Joan Rittenauer claim that 22 more witnesses from the New Zealand military eventually came forward to corroborate Ryan Reichardt's story. They also share what they referred to as part of the official history of the Gallipoli campaign. In the book, the authors state that this official history describes how the Norfolks were ensconced within a strange, unseasonable fog which reflected sunlight in such a way as to produce a blinding glare in which artillery personnel had been unable to fire. This all seems like it could coincide with the weird clouds that Reichardt and company claim to have seen, and it also links up with another account that McCrary describes in his book. On August 21, 1915, the Allied forces launched a massive attack involving around 3,000 men against Hill 60, the very hill mentioned in Reichardt's account. During this attack, Sir John Milbank, VC, the commander of a unit called the Sherwood Rangers Yeomanry, claimed that a strange pearly mist had obscured their view of the enemy during the battle. McCreary surmised that what Reichardt had seen occurred on this day, August 21st, and not on August 12th as claimed, and that he had witnessed this strange mist rather than UFOs. McCreary concluded that it is quite possible that in the confusion of war, Reichardt may have seen this mist and had heard rumors of the missing battalion from August 12th and subsequently had confused the two events over the years, mixing them into one story of a battalion being swallowed by strange clouds. What Reichardt had really seen was probably a regiment of Sherwood Rangers on August 21st fighting in this mist, with the identities and dates becoming distorted over time to become the Norfolks and their disappearance on August 12th. McCrary theorized that the story was a confused mishmash of the two events and that this confusion, plus undoubtedly embellishment added over the years, had resulted in Reichardt's account of the Norfolks being abducted by bizarre flying clouds on August 12, 1915. McCrary's book would later be adapted into a BBC documentary about the incident titled All the King's Men. So what really happened here? Although the story of a whole battalion being abducted by cloud-shaped UFOs is still bandied about, it seems like the available evidence points to something a little more mundane, yet infinitely more ghastly. The Norfolks were likely captured and mercilessly executed, after which they had been left to rot where they lay, and their fate covered up by the War Office, as well as the commander of the campaign, Sir Ian Hamilton. The rumors of the disappearing battalion spread, and 50 years later, a former New Zealand sapper by the name of Reichardt comes forward with his half-remembered mixed-up story, which then propels itself into legend. While some UFO enthusiasts still like to cling to the abduction story, there seems to be very little to strongly support it. As alluring as it is to think that a whole battalion of men was spirited away by alien clouds, there is the very strong likelihood that this is yet another one of many myths and legends 
that have sprung up from the fog of war. Nevertheless, the image of a whole battalion charging valiantly into battle to mysteriously vanish and never be heard from again is a compelling and powerful one, and it certainly captures the imagination. No matter what information we have or how closed the case may seem, it seems that the story of the vanished battalion is an enduring tale that's just too good to let go, and certainly has become entrenched within the pantheon of great wartime mysteries. Well, that's all I have for this week, so I want to thank you for being along. Come back next week. I hope you enjoy the show. Have a great week. Bye-bye.